Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that sheds light on a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here with me today. Okay, in today's talk, this is a Dharma talk that I gave last week. I released these one week after the event. But today's talk is called Improvising Through Fear. And in this talk, I continue to try to create a bridge between the pedagogy of jazz and the way I've been thinking more and more about practicing and teaching meditation. Specifically, what are the skills of improvisation that a jazz musician cultivates? And how can those same skills support a creative and improvisational approach to spirituality? And in this talk, I, I draw on my experience in teaching mindfulness to a sports psychology course at Boston University with my colleague, Dr. Amy Baltzell. And in that course, in addition to focusing on what you could call meditative mindfulness, the kind of mindfulness that John Kabat-Zinn pioneered and secularized, I should say, obviously mindfulness has been pioneered in various wisdom traditions, particularly the Buddhist wisdom tradition for a few thousand years now. But John Kabat-Zinn secularized that, and um, we, in the course, we, we draw on his pedagogy, but we also include non-meditative mindfulness that Ellen Langer pioneered for the last 40 years at Harvard. Um, I released a talk, my, my interview with Ellen Langer last week, and if you missed that, please go back and listen to that, because she is increasingly, again, I should say, is, I'm coming full circle here, Ellen Langer's approach to mindfulness, I think, is a, is a wonderful addition and infusion into any meditative path that you might be on. So I'll be bringing in, a, I'm starting to bring that in a little bit in this talk, this sort of uh, active noticing of new things that Ellen Langer speaks to. And then I also put that in context with something that Carol Dweck refers to as mindset, specifically the differences between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And how really, regardless of what we're doing in our life, we want to be in a growth mindset so that we learn to tolerate and um, work with quote-unquote perceived mistakes so that we, when we feel like we make errors or have difficulties or get out of our comfort zone, we don't collapse into a sense of failure, but we actually welcome those opportunities and learn from them. That's what growth mindset's all about, learning to, to tolerate and, and work with mistakes and, and turn them into great learning opportunity, opportunities. So in combining Carol Dweck's work, Ellen Langer's work, contemplative mindfulness, non-meditative mindfulness, my argument is that if we bring these all together into, a, or into our contemplative journey, we will develop the skill sets that a jazz musician has so that we can play through the fear, the difficulties of our being with an improviser's skill, adaptability, and ultimately flourishing. So that's what I'm trying to get at in this talk. And I'll be speaking more about this theme more and more in, in, in coming weeks. But before I give you the talk, I just want to say a warm welcome to anybody that's new to the show. It's great to have you here. I hope uh, the content of this talk or any of the talks or interviews is supportive to you and your practice. And I hope you enjoy it. 
if you've been listening for a while, if you've been coming along and you have really benefited and, and appreciate what we're doing here or what I'm trying to do here at the, with the show, uh, I encourage you to consider, if you're able, consider please supporting the show. This is a, a free podcast, and um, I don't have a Patreon account, but there are a few simple ways that you could give monetary support to the work that Terry and I are trying to do. Um, those are listed in the show notes, but you could take a class with us online for $10. You could buy the meditation book I co-wrote with Michael Brooks for $10. You could um, take a, any of the uh, uh, sort of continuing education courses that Terry and I put together for yin yoga, traditional Chinese medicine, meditation, and yang yoga. And if you get really hooked, or, or hip, hip, as I'll be saying, if you get hip to what we're doing, you could consider becoming a, a member, uh, which would be at, at a starting fee of $25 a month, which would give you access to our live classes each week. We have four classes each week that are live, and those classes, if you're not able to attend live, they get recorded and put into an archived library on my site for viewing and, and, and um, study any time that suits you. So those are some simple ways to support us, and we very much appreciate you and your help if you have or if you're considering it. So thanks again. And of course, uh, taking a class with us is not the only way to give monetary support. A simple non-monetary form of support is to share the podcast with a friend or through your network if you find anything that we're that I'm speaking about valuable. So thanks again so much for that support, and uh, I hope you enjoy today's talk. Now, without further ado, here we go with Improvising Through Fear. So just thinking about these talks, and particularly after in light of the, the workshop I gave on Saturday, on kind of an introduction and overview of what I'm calling yin meditation. Um, the case I tried to make in the workshop is that that it, it can be can be interesting and, and helpful to apply some of the principles of learning jazz improvisation or jazz pedagogy and apply those to the development of a meditative life. Because um, essentially the theme is that I think the Dharma often uh, can be approached as a kind of a, almost a doctrine that you have to get right. You have to do it correctly. And there's a lot of rigid rules around it that people internalize. But I think it's, it's much more beneficial to consider the Dharma as a, as a comprehensive, integral way of developing improvisational skills for your life. And so you like you can improvise, as I said in the workshop, through the changes of your life. And um, for me, this is this is sort of I'm, I'm coming to a deeper appreciation of how these two worlds, the music world, the jazz improvisational world, and the Dharma world, have really always been uh, intertwined for me. And as I probably shared um, early on, my, one of my first major music teachers was. Um, had, a, had his own way of conveying spirituality through music. And it was only recently that I, that I discovered that he was a um, kind of a devotee of, of Alan Watts. And so now when I read, listen to or read Alan Watts, I, I hear his, his voice um, coming through my teacher's voice. But at, at a certain point um, in high school, I left one of the schools I was at and, and got accepted very um, 
luckily, I'd say, into a boarding school south of Boston called Milton Academy. And uh, the jazz teacher there, who was a former math teacher at the school, the jazz teacher really had a special way of teaching jazz and 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 really caught um, the the students' their aspiration for jazz on fire in in his classroom. And and he also had a deep spiritual practice. He was a he was a student of uh, and is still a student of Amaji's. Um, but he was, he always would talk about spirituality and kind of its relationship to music. And my senior year at Milton, uh, this jazz teacher had convinced the great South African jazz pianist, Abdullah Ibrahim, to come to the school and give a concert. Now, if you haven't heard of Abdullah, um, Abdullah Ibrahim, his other, his performing name was sometimes Dollar Brand because, uh, his last name was Brand and in Cape Town, Whenever the ships would come through, he would go to the docks and 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 bargain for for jazz records, and so his nickname was he was looking for the best dollar brand on on, on jazz, jazz jazz albums. Um, but Nelson Mandela refers to Abdullah Ibrahim as as South Africa's Mozart, and he was brought to it was discovered in in Switzerland by Duke Ellington. And then brought to the United States, um, where he had a, a and still has a, a long career in in jazz, and primarily in New York. But as I was preparing for this talk, and I was, I was thinking about the theme of last week's talk of of doubt, you know, one of the side occurred to me one of the sides of doubt is is fear. When we when we confront fear that can really instill us a chill of doubt about what to do or how to handle it or how to proceed or how to move forward. And as I started thinking about the energy of fear, this brought me back to the day, my senior year, that Abdullah Ibrahim came to campus. And in the morning session, before the evening concert um, that he gave, in the morning, he, he kind of gave a master class to the school. And there was only about 25, 30 of us there, but he told this story and, and it's the story I want to share because he told this story about what I remember it to be was a story about the, the graduation ceremony of a samurai becoming a samurai warrior. So the, 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 the graduation of, 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 of a samurai becoming fully um, realized as a samurai. And he says, at the end of the training, all the other samurais would line up in, a, in, a, in two columns. So there'd be this channel between them. And those two, in those two columns, all the samurais that were already graduated would raise their swords high, kind of crossing at a, at a, at a peak over the channel. And the, and the, and the, and the, and the samurai graduate-to-be would need to pass through that channel of these samurai warriors. And the way Abdullah described it, he says, so the samurai-to-be faces this condition of intense fear. If he so much as slips up just a little bit, all the other samurais are commanded to like, bring, the, bring the sword down because the samurai is not fit to, to, to take on the mantle of that role. But he said, if the samurai-to-be is able to pass through that channel of intense fear, on the other side, they'll discover bliss. They discover bliss. 
Now, when Abdullah told the story, I, I don't remember if he explained the each phase of that bit of the story. But what he did say is he compared it to the jazz artist. And the jazz artist opens up to, you know, melodic and harmonic landscape and has to spontaneously improvise something that's compelling, moving, deep, profound, joyous. And, to, and as jazz artists do, they often go right, as my friend Aaron Goldberg would say, they go right to the edge of the cliff and then bring it back. So it's always tempting the danger, always challenging the danger, always going to the edge of their fear and bringing it back. And as jazz artists do, to, to grow the skills to be able to do that, to create spontaneously on the fly something that's both musically moving and powerful requires tremendous amount of training to, to get to that point. And as I shared in the past, that was something that I, I kind of ran aground because my ear training was so low. My, my ear, my oral skills weren't, weren't very good. But the idea is that in, in, in through a practice, and this is the connection I want to make to the Dharma, but with a practice, with a consistent practice, like coming together here, talking about it, and, and, and really I, I'm trying to think of these Dharma talks as Dharma sessions where I, I riff on something, and then you get to riff on it in your practice a little bit, and then we get to jam about it and discuss what it's like. But in our practice, our Dharma practice, we're we are, in a sense, refining skill sets that support our ability to improvise through the changes of our life. You know, in jazz, the harmonic landscape that moves are called the, the chord changes, the changes of the, of the song. And, and as I tried to say on, on Saturday's workshop, that we are always going to be experiencing change. There's one constant in life that's change. So how the Dharma practice is a, is a training process for supporting one's ability to navigate those change, those changes in a way that doesn't kind of devolve into a life of fear, reactivity, and collapse, even. How do we how do we navigate and, and embrace the change of life without without collapsing? How do we na- how do we navigate the change of life with, with wisdom and compassion? So as I was thinking about like, navigating the, ter- the terrain of change and the inevitable fear that comes up or the uncertainty that comes up with that change, I was also thinking back to that phase of my career when I was involved with a collaboration at Boston University, who I think I mentioned last week. With a, I, was, I was working with a sports psychologist in her, in her program to... Uh, teach people to how to apply mindfulness to a variety of different kinds of uh, performance domains, whether it was music or theater or, or sport. And <clears throat> so there, you know, when we talk about mindfulness in that context, when we talk about mindfulness, we don't necessarily address the, uh, the, the stretch reduction or the attainment of peace kind of dimensions. There, what the way I framed it was, in, in in developing the capacity to perform, 
one of the ways that I think mindfulness supports that is that mindfulness allows us to be more okay with discomfort. Mindfulness training taught me how to be more okay, more tolerant to discomfort. And that discomfort shows up in many domains of cultivating or developing your skills as a quote unquote performer or an athlete or a musician. One of them, I think, is in the learning process itself. And this is kind of what I want to uh, reflect on here and, and, and suggest you reflect on in your practice, which is that in learning any skill, if you're going to learn, one of the things you will be uh, required to do is to tolerate error, to tolerate making mistakes. If you do something and you never make mistakes, you're never going to grow out of your own comfort or your own current skill set. You're never going to expand and grow. And uh, in that collaboration at BU with sports psychologist Amy Balsell, she introduced me to the the work and the literature of a uh, contemporary psychologist named Carol Dweck, who really pioneered this idea of two broad, distinct mindsets that people have about themselves and how that conditions their experience and growth in the world or in their life. And those two mindsets that Carol Dweck talks about are that, that she says that people can have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. Fixed mindset is one where you see your skills, your qualities, your traits, your capacities. You see all of that as being fixed, as the name fixed mindset implies, meaning it's innate. You either have it or you don't. And, there, and there's no amount of practice or development that will change kind of the, the levels of those skills and capacities that you have. Comparing that, a fixed mindset, she says, there's also this base, basic mindset known as growth mindset, where you see your skills and capacities amenable to practice. And you don't identify with things being fixed in you. You identify with your capacity to try to make error and not be defined by the error as a failure. That's a fixed mindset. Like if you if you fail, the fixed mindset person says, I'm terrible, I shouldn't do this again. The growth mindset person says, I can learn from my errors. And I know this can sound kind of abstract, but it has very big real world consequences. And the way, what the, the study that got um, Carol Dweck on the map was that she ran a study with fifth graders. Some of you have probably heard this, where two groups of fifth graders were given an equal set of math problems to do at fifth grade level math. And after doing the, the problem sets, group A got told privately, wow, you did so well. You must be really smart. And group B got told, wow, you did really well. You must have worked really hard. So the difference is you got praised for being intelligent. You're so smart. Or you got praised for working hard. They then asked both groups, we're going to give you another problem set, they said. We're going to give you one more problem set. Would you want one that's at the same level of difficulty you just took? Or would you like one that's a little bit more challenging? And they found on average 
those that you know the, those that got praised for being smart i think it was 60 to 70% of them chose to stay at the same difficulty level whereas those that got praised for being uh, for for working hard those that got praised for their effort they selected on on average uh, a higher rate the more difficult problem set i'm going to cut this cut this uh, the rest of the study short a little bit but after they gave them the second problem set they then went back and gave them a difficult a problem set at the same original difficulty level. So where they start, the same difficulty level where they started. And they found that those that got praised for their effort did on average about 30% better than they did the first round. And those that got praised for being smart did about 20% worse than they did the first round. Because the idea is if you get praised for being having a trait like intelligence, like you're so smart. What a good per like you're so bright. Then because that becomes a, an identity in you, you identify with that trait rather than the capacity to grow. You are you're 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 fragile to any experience that will threaten the estimation of that trait. In other words, if you get praised for being intelligent, you will avoid circumstances that will make you not look intelligent. And you will not grow and you will actually contract in, in a certain sense. <clears throat> so what Amy Baltel and I were trying to share with our classes is that to grow in any field and on any domain, there needs to be, in some sense, a, a willingness kind of a mindset, a growth mindset of sort that frames mistakes, quote unquote errors, as the vital necessary part of one's growth and development. And if you're not willing to make mistakes, you're, you're just going to stay at the plateau level that you're at. And this is certainly, I've had many examples of, with this when I've gone back to, to practice music. You know, every time a teacher asks me to do something outside of my comfort zone, you know, I get the sweaty palms, the sweaty armpits, the chills, the 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 the, the dry mouth. <laughs> this are all the 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 experience of anxiety and 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 fear that come up. But if you can, if I've noticed myself, if I'm able to punctuate through that through persistent, dogged effort, the fear falls away, and there is a joyous, maybe not bliss the way Abdullah Ibrahim described it, but there's a sense of internal confidence that I can be aligned with a pro I can tolerate mistakes. I can tolerate looking stupid or not so clear or not so good and learn. So the way I think this maps into our journey in, in, in both yoga, the way Terry and I teach it, and the way I'm trying to share the meditation journey here is that meditation is an exercise where we slowly and, and safely, that's the point I'll, I'll be reiterating again, but we slowly and safely grow our capacity to tolerate things, experiences that we might start out feeling are intolerable. You know, I, I, you just a simple example of going on my first silent meditation retreat. I can't tell you the number of people I know before I went on that retreat that said, aren't you worried? Aren't you afraid of what's going to happen? 
I said, what do you mean? It's going on a meditation retreat. Everyone, lots of people do these. I said, yeah, but what if your mind explodes? <laughs> what if you fall apart? What if like, what if you, what if you never can talk again? You stop talking, your tongue just stops working. So all these like projected fears. And I have to admit, after you know, I was a little cavalier when I went on my first retreat. I didn't think it was, I thought it would be no big deal, no sweat. After two or three days, I realized what all my friends were concerned about. <laughs> my head was felt like it was going to explode. There was all this reactivity and difficulty and pain in my body and yada yada yada. But in learning to navigate those difficulties, the safety, there was a bliss that came, and it wasn't necessarily a, a state of bliss. But it was a joyous freedom from limiting beliefs and fears. Because I knew if I can do this, if I can learn this, this ability to tolerate these difficulties will strengthen my ability to learn anything. Because I can tolerate the discomfort of not knowing, of not looking good, not sounding good. So what I want to just try to weave in now is how the basic framework of what I share around yin meditation, I think, again, gradually and safely develops our capacity to tolerate life more and more on life's terms. I use the phrase that, you know, life has changed. My mother shared me when she went to her local Vedanta center many years ago and and the the leader there, when when she was leaving the center, a spiritual center in the community to go out to California and likely never to return. Everyone was sort of really sad. Like, how can you go? Like, you're not going to, aren't you going to come back? We're going to miss you. And, and the teacher said, look, life is change. You may not like it, but life is change. And was, as my mother said that last night over dinner, I, I joked back. I said, you know, let me, what about, what about this line? Life is change. And if you don't like it, it doesn't like you very much either. If you don't like change, which life is, life becomes a problem. It's an endless succession of problems. So to help us navigate the flow through the changes, in meditation, we start with the perch. And as I've been recommending, I, you can use multiple things for the perch, but in general, just the, the felt sense of your hands resting on your lap. And someone picked up on this last week, but I, I referred to that as a reference point. Uh, it's not something that we're just trying to keep our attention on as, a, as an exercise of, of, of attentional control. What the perch functions is as a as a reference point is that it becomes a reference point so that we can see how the mind moves into other things off the perch. It's in seeing how the mind moves, we get to see the changes of our experience, the changes of the body, the changes of our mood, the changes of our thought. So from that perch, we're able to listen more closely to the unfolding dynamics of our experience. And that's really the, that's the essence of this, this, like I'm not calling it my approach to meditation, but you know, in, in any awareness-based system, the essence is just to listen 
to the changing nature of experience. Or as you could say, the only thing to do in meditation or the only thing to change is that we're deepening our capacity to witness change. And in, in deepening our capacity to witness change, we deepen our capacity to creatively improvise our way through change. We have to learn how to listen to it first. So from the perch, as a reference point, the next instruction or the next element of the instruction is, is a quality of receptivity in the mind to, to incline our awareness into a receptive mode. Where we're not trying to manipulate, we're not trying to prevent something or stop something or interrupt something or get back to something or get away from anything. We're just receptive to the way it is. And that tr way it is, the truth of the way it is, you can describe it in many ways, but it's always like this. The way it is is like this. So we sense the way it is. I'll say more about it. I'll come, come back to that, that element in a second. But from the receptivity, so we're, in a sense, you could say the receptive, the gentle receptivity, the kind receptivity that I'm encouraging, opens us to the truth of life as we experience it. And in doing that, it's likely, unless you're you know, coming in already completely awake, but it's very likely that in the beginning and for long, a long progression of development and your and deepening of your practice, you will experience, you will encounter experiences through the receptivity that you're not able to tolerate that are too intense. And that can be, that could be a physical sensation, but more often than not, it is, takes the form in any of the variety of trauma, wound, pain in the heart that we all experience as a consequence of being born. You know, I know it doesn't necessarily, I mean, that what I just said, that, that is really a summary, summarization of the Buddha's concept of dukkha or dis, uh, dis-ease, meaning uh, an unsatisfactory, difficult kind of experience of suffering. And as he said, this is, a, this is just a, the condition of life to the unawakened mind. Because the awakened mind knows how to play over the changes of life, doesn't resist the changes, knows how to improvise and flow with the changes. The unawakened mind sees change and contracts. No, I can't grow in this. I have to protect. I have to hold. I have to try to keep it from changing. So in the, in the process of being receptive, this is where we're learning to, as we say in yin yoga, learning to play our edge skillfully. And this is, this is the safety and um, sort of slow process at play here. Rather than saying from the beginning, you should just open to everything as it is. Don't move. Don't blink. Don't, don't shift. Don't adjust. Don't redirect your attention, which could, in a way, flood you at points 
with something you can't process or integrate. And that could be then kind of a, a, an experience of re-traumatization. Just like we talk about in yin yoga, with playing the edge of the pose, the physical edge, or the kinesthetic edge. What I want to suggest here is we're, we're, we're learning to play our mental edge as in how we see we're able to do so. So if something comes up, you know, the gentle encouragement is to be kind and tolerant to it and explore it. And I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But if there's something that comes up that's too much, then bringing your attention back to the perch, opening your eyes, listening to sounds, in other words, redirecting your attention from what you're focused on is a, is a, is a, is a, is a gesture of not avoidance, but it's a gesture of wise compassion. So if you, if, if you determine that in your own experience, while you're sitting with your own, within your own receptivity, if something's emerging, that's too much, please, please hear me. Like just, we say in Yin Po, you do not stay past your tolerance, your tissues tolerance. You don't stay past your, your psychological tolerance to the experience. And you, you either come out or you redirect your attention back to the perch or you open your eyes or you, as I often indicate, you have freedom to engage any other practice you may be familiar with. <clears throat> but the quality of tolerance, I want to just mention this a little bit, is that when we start to tolerate things outside of our comfort zone, in a way we start to unearth slowly this this the this, the velocity of this process is key it's not too fast but when we're tolerant we start to and we're outside our comfort zone we start to slowly let the patterns of being that avoid the thing we're we're slightly uncomfortable towards the patterns of reactivity of resistance start to come up the fear like like and it's like that low-grade fear, low-grade discomfort. I'm not talking about high-grade, low-grade on the end of the spectrum. But titrated at that level, then we can start to work with seeing all those hindrances that we've been talking about the last several months on a manageable level, at a workable level. And it's there and seeing the desire, the restlessness, the annoyance, the boredom. That's when we work with that material. Now we learn how to, in a low stakes way, we start to learn how to improvise through those challenging changes of being. Like the, as I said on Saturday, the challenging chords in a, in a piece of music. You, you work with it slowly at a, at, a, at a level that is workable. And then you get comfortable with that edge. You know, and on the physical level, I should say, at the physical level, you kind of, it, there is an end point. There's only so far you're going to be able to go in the pose before you hit bone on bone compression. But in terms of our, our psychological and, 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 and really at the level of our being's development, that, I think this process goes on and on and on. The, 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 the concentric spheres of, of expansion continue to go on and on and on. So this is where I hope you'll see that it can be fun. 
in a way. We can be playful with playing our edge. We listen, we're sensitive to what's going on, and we and we're curious. Are, are we it's a it's a, an exercise of compassion. Are we able to be with us? And if we are, the compassion looks into the difficulties at a at a workable range and starts to understand how it works. And it's through understanding it, through the, the compassionate energy to understand it, that we start to develop greater wisdom to these to the mechanics or to the anatomy of these difficulties. The only thing I want to add now, the last bit piece, is so we, we start the meditation, or we get into the meditation, there's a there's the component of the perch, which you've heard about now many different times for me. The encouragement to be receptive, tolerant, and uh, permission to play your edge. But when you are receptive and aware of what's going on, I just want to add in, like last week I talked about kind of investigating the energy that that was carrying you out off from the perch, the, the energy that brought you into the wandering mind and to kind of feel into the, the, the what that energy was seeking and just to listen to that energy's desire or that energy's uh, concern. And that's a, that, that's like, that was the jam. That was the, that was the riff of last week. And some of you practice it and really liked it. And I would say, if you like anything that I riff off, Use it and make it your own. Integrate it into your own developmental practice. For this week, I want to share a tip from uh, another uh, woman researcher that we talked a lot about in my Boston University course. Her name is Ellen Langer. And I am reissuing a, a, an interview I had with her on my podcast this Thursday. Ellen was the first woman to be tenured in the psychology department at Harvard. And she has spent the last 40 plus years studying and researching what she calls non-meditative mindfulness. So it's mindfulness without the zafu, mindfulness without the cushion, mindfulness without the breath. And the way she defines mindfulness is simply noticing new things, or as I we used to say in the course, noticing novelty. Noticing things that are changing, noticing things that are new, noticing things that are different. And she says, when you're when you're when you're noticing new things, you're situated in the present moment naturally. Whatever you're looking at. So if I'm right now, I'm looking at the, the, the lamp on my mother's coffee table. And to notice new things, I'm situated in the present. But I'm also starting to become more sensitive and aware of context as well. And, the, and this onboards, this noticing of new things, just onboards a natural curiosity that itself is enlivening. So my tip, my one little tip tonight, the riff of the tip is when you find yourself receptive to your experience and, and experiencing what's happening, just coach yourself gently. Notice new things here. If it's a familiar thing, what's new about this? If it's something new, what's new about going on right now? And to see if that, because sometimes the receptivity sounds like you, you're kind of like trying to aspire to be a spiritual doormat. Like I'm just going to lie down and be receptive and just let all experience walk all over me, but I'm going to be receptive. I'm not going to lift a finger. <laughs> So this is this is sort of the combination of receptivity and noticing. New is kind of the combination of a, a like we call yin yang attributes of the mind. 
to bring them into harmony. But we begin with the listening component and then the noticing, which is sort of an out, a more, maybe slightly more active dynamic from the listening. But they complement each other beautifully. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. I hope it gives you something to reflect on, and I hope it also uh, helps you access and cultivate capacities for flow, both in your meditation and your life. Again, if you're able to, please consider supporting the show. There's simple ways of doing that that are listed in the show notes. You can take a class with us. You can buy a book. You can buy a course. You can become a member. Easy, low-hassle ways of supporting the work we're doing here, and we very much appreciate anything you offer in advance. So thank you very much. Until I see you again, please stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you very soon.